Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Today we're going to beginning, uh, begin looking at verses 9 through 21. I'm only going to cover 9 through 13, but I want you to be aware of the whole paragraph. If you'll turn there, we'll read it together. <clears throat> well, I'll read it and you can follow. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, and like I say, we're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 13 in the message this morning. I want to remind you of the principle of biblical interpretation that says one of the most important things is context. Every verse, every statement occurs in a context. And if you're not aware of that surrounding, you know, there's a tendency either to misapply it or misunderstand it, or at least just to fail to get the full impact of the meaning. Well, these verses have a context. First of all, they're in chapter 12. And chapter 12, as we've noted before, is a, is a major turning point in Paul's letter to the Romans because up until that time, he has primarily been telling us about who we are in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us. In other words, it has been predominantly about the doctrine of salvation, about who we are through the salvation grace of Jesus Christ and all that we have because of that. But there comes a point when, as one of the songs said from 20 or so years ago, you have to come down from the mountaintop. And we've been in that lofty place of, of doctrine where we have enjoyed all the richness of spiritual truth, but there comes the time when you have to step out into the world and, and, and take action. When you have to go to work, when you have to <clears throat> be with your family, when you have to go buy groceries, when you have to, uh, you know, whatever it is that you do. And when we turn that corner, we turn to the practical expression of the life of Jesus Christ in the day-to-day -day activities of the world. I hope you'll have a chance, if you haven't already done so, uh, to read the front page of your bulletin. Wait till you get home. Don't read it now. But read that because I was kind of writing that for myself as a preface to today's message, just collecting my thoughts. And in doing so, I thought I probably should share this. 
You cannot be a spiritual person in a vacuum. And you cannot be truly spiritual in your closet. You can pray in your closet, and you may be spiritual, even though you're in your closet. But no one can see that, and no one can experience it, and you can't test it until you get out of the closet. The test of patience is not when you're sitting around not waiting for anything. The test of patience is when you desperately need to get somewhere and there's 500 people in front of you. That's when you know whether or not you have the patience of the Holy Spirit as a spiritual fruit. It's it's not when you're not being tested. You can only determine and discover your Practical spirituality when you're under fire. And when you're in the real world, and when you're ministering in the real world. And so Paul is taking us there, and he's saying to us, this is how the faith looks in action. And in chapter 12, we've already seen that he begins by saying, that the first thing that is required for you to successfully live this Christian life is you need to have an abrupt transformation of your mind. Your mind needs to be turned around because in the natural person, you don't think like God. And if you're going to be godly, you have to think the way God thinks. You need a transformation of your mind. And with that, you need a complete devotion of sacrifice to the Lord that your life is a living sacrifice. I'm not the most important person here. I'm not the one who matters. What matters is Jesus Christ and Him manifesting Himself to other people. I have died to to myself and to the world in order to live for Him. Living sacrifices. And having said that, Paul said, uh, you know, the, the next thing that you need with the renewed mind in this living sacrifice you need to have a biblical self-image. That's the first thing in your worldview that needs to be corrected. You need to have a biblical self-image. You don't need to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You don't need to, to, to be you know, stuck on yourself and arrogant and puffed up. But by the same token, as a child of God, you don't need to see yourself as scum of the earth either. Don't think more highly than you ought to think. Because whether you realize it or not, when you walk out of that prayer closet and into the world, you are the container of God. Let me say it again. You are the container of God. He lives in you. You're His temple. Yes, He's present everywhere in the world. He's omnipresent. But He manifests Himself primarily through His children, His followers, who demonstrate His life in them. You take God with you to the breakfast table. You take God with you to work. You you drive with Him on the freeway. You take Him into the marketplace. You bring Him into the neighborhood. You go to school carrying God into the classroom. You are a container of God. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit where He lives. And so we need to have this perspective, this right understanding. It's not me. And yet I am important. I am strategic. I have a mission and a ministry. And because of that, the Holy Spirit has equipped me. 
He has given me gifts that I can use by His grace and empowerment in the church and in the world. I can manifest His presence through the gifts that He has given me as equipment for ministering His presence. That's what spiritual gifts are all about. And so when we come to this passage where we now begin to focus on our attitudes and actions one to another around the ministry, the context is we're learning what it looks like to live Jesus out in the church and in the world. There's another context here that's bigger than the book of Romans. And that is this, and it's, it's an amazing parallel to me. Every time Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he almost immediately talks about love. It's just remarkable. The love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know where that's found? Between 12 and 14, right? But 12 and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. All about spiritual gifts. And in the middle of a discussion of spiritual gifts, he stops and writes the love chapter. And he begins by saying, I will show you a more excellent way. What does he mean by that? He means no matter how gifted you are, if you don't have love, this is his grand summation. If you don't have love, you're nothing. You're a tinkling cymbal, a clanging gong. You could move mountains with your faith, but you're never really going to amount to a hill of beans in the church if you lack love. Thessalonians brings up love. Ephesians brings up love. Every time he talks about giftedness, he lands right in the middle of love. It's almost as if he's saying there is a pitfall that spirit-filled, gifted believers are likely to fall into. Having said all that I've said, the danger is that you will be so wowed by spiritual power that you'll be caught up in that and forget that the most important thing is that we love each other. Love is the real testimony of the child of God. Jesus said, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples. The way you love each other. <laughs> Listen, it's not how you witness. I'm not saying witnessing isn't important. It is. But they're not going to know you're my disciples by how much you talk about the gospel. They're not going to know you're my disciples by how much you demonstrate spiritual power. They're not going to know that you're my disciples by how much time you spend reading the Bible and praying. But they will unmistakably identify you as my disciples when they see that you love each other the way I have loved you and the way the Father loves me. When they see that love demonstrated in your midst, then they will know that you're my disciples. So if you want to give an unmistakable testimony that fortifies your words, and don't misunderstand anything I just said, because if you never explain yourself, people don't know 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is the reason you are who you are. And, and if you never demonstrate the Spirit and power, then there's no verification and authentication of your message. But it is your life of love that demonstrates your connection with God. Because it's the one thing that the devil absolutely, positively cannot and will not duplicate. He is totally, eternally self-centered. And the essence of sin is self. And the only thing that he cannot reproduce is love. It can only come from God. And so, in the midst of that, Paul was reminding us, as you consider your ministry to one another, one thing I really want you to key in on is the significance of love. Now, in verses 9 through 21... There, it's hard to divide these up. Commentators are all over the place on how they should be uh, organized, or even if they can be organized. I kind of divided them into two parts. 9 to 13, I said, was kind of um, proactive. This is how you ought to act out. And then 14 through 21 were reactive. This is how you should respond when things in the world go bump against you, you know. So there's proactive and reactive. There's all kind of different ways to look at it. One person said that verse 9 is the general heading, and all of these verses are grouped under it. Okay, love, by the way, here's what it looks like. Here's, here are the practical points of love, but love is the overarching theme of all of these verses. It really doesn't matter how you take it apart. Some people say that the first half of the verses up through 13 apply within the church and 14 and so on with persecution and those that uh, do evil to you and don't like you and all that kind of stuff is outside the church. But if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that some of that happens inside the church. So, you know, it's not all outside the church. So I don't, I don't know how you want to divide this up. But the way that Paul has structured the rest of this chapter really does boil down to a practical demonstration of love in your life. What does love look like? Now you're a transformed, mentally renewed, living sacrifice with a biblical self-image filled with spiritual power to manifest spiritual giftedness Okay, when you go to do this to one another, how do you do it? What is, what is the, the medium? What is the atmosphere in which ministry takes place? And that is how we love. And that's what he says. So first of all, he begins in verse 9 by saying, Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, we don't know what to do with this sentence because in the Greek there's really no verb. In fact, there's not even a subject, and let is invented by our translators because the word love here is a noun followed by an adverb. Love, the subject, genuinely. Love, sincerely. We would turn it around in English in our syntax, and we would simply make it a heading. Sincere love. That's what Paul says. 
sincere love. That's his heading for the whole section. And it's interesting that in these couple of verses, I've told you before there are four words in Greek that can translate love. Paul uses three of them in these two verses. Four different words, Paul picks three of them. There's agape, there's phileo, there's storge, and then there's eros. Eros is when you love your car, you love your house, you love your your new shirt or sweater or whatever it is. Um, it, It describes the kind of love that is kind of fleshly in nature that's associated with the body. It also describes sexual love. And eros is not necessarily a bad love. It's good in its proper context, but the Greeks were able to separate that out and say, okay, this is a kind of love. And then there is this storge kind of love that we observe in nature and in families that parents have a nurturing attitude toward their offspring. It's just kind of a natural thing. I, I, You know, babies are just irresistibly cute. Aren't you just drawn to them? Everybody loves babies. You know? Don't admit it if you don't. <clears throat> because they just they just draw your readers digest came a month or so ago and it was uh you know they had a the whole issue was about laughing and, and they had this baby on the front, this big face with like two teeth in the top and two in the bottom. They weren't above each other, you know, they were kinda of offset. And he's got this screwed up but hilarious laughing expression on his face. And I cannot look at that magazine without laughing. You know, every time I looked at it, I laughed because I was just drawn to that baby. And babies elicit that. And there's a natural nurturing kind of, you want to protect them, you want to take care of them, you want to, you want to hold them, you want to snuggle them. You, babies just call that out of you. And the Greeks called that storge. And then there is phileo. That is the, 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 the emotional kind of attachment of the heart and the mind and the soul with a good friend, a brother or sister, a good friend. You love being together. You enjoy each other. You enjoy the time you spend. There's all of that kind of tender emotion that goes on in the context of people you really like. And then agape is the love that describes that sacrificial commitment that says, I love you enough that no matter what you need, I will do it for you no matter what it costs me. Paul says God demonstrated this love toward us when Jesus went to the cross. This is agape. Wasn't fun, didn't feel good. It was hard, it caused his death, it was painful, it was separation from God, the Son of God separated from the Father. But he did that because he loved us. And that's what we needed. Agape love may or may not have feelings. Agape love may or may not be associated with pleasure. But it is always associated with a commitment that says, I will do what you need because I love you no matter what it costs me. And that's the word that Paul uses in verse 9. Love, agape, sincerely. This is the subject. Let love be without hypocrisy. And you know, people know when you love them and when you don't. They, they can sense that. They just pick that up. It kind of oozes out. 
Um, the word sincere in the Greek language actually came from a practice that artisans, well, really charlatans, <laughs> would, would use, uh, you know, merchants that were trying to sell cheap merchandise. They might be selling statuary or, you know, they had yard art back in the Roman Empire. Isn't that amazing? You know, I don't know if they bought one of those pink ones, flamingos. I don't know if they bought flamingos, but but they had yard art. In the, you got to get the illustration in there, don't you? <laughs> that, this is the mouth, by the way. But uh, they would buy this statuary, and sometimes, you know, moving that stuff around from market to market, it would get chipped and dinged and scratched and cracked. And they would take some wax and work it in their hands until it got a little dirty. And they would rub it in the cracks and in the, in the chips and smooth it over and kind of polish it out and buff it up. And, and they would keep those pieces in the shade. And that would hide the blemishes. You know, and a person might look at this piece and say, is that sincere? What they were meaning was, does that have wax in it? Because what would happen is you'd take this thing home and you'd put it in your yard. And the sun would come up and the wax would melt. And the cracks and the dings and the chips would suddenly show. And you knew you'd been had. And the word sincere comes from that. Love without wax. (laughs) Don't hide the cracks. Be genuine. Be totally up front. Be completely honest. Be transparent in your love that is the genuine article. Because when you fake it, it kind of shows up eventually. And a lot of times, you know, we just kind of make nice with each other, but there's no real love going on that's that underlying commitment. Paul says you've got to have that commitment. You've got to have that sincerity. Love without hypocrisy. And then he gives us two statements to go with that. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. In order for love to have this capacity, it has to also have moral rectitude. There must be a compass, a moral compass that goes with it. And Paul says the two elements of that genuine godly love include a hatred for evil and a love a clinging to what is good. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a moment. Those of you that have been around a while will recognize this as one of my favorite soapboxes. And those of you who are relatively new to us are about to find out one of my favorite soapboxes. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 where Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, our translators don't know what to do with these verses, because they don't say what you expect them to say. And so they've translated, I mean, this is, this is not bad, but it's not great either. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And we get into all these discussions about righteous anger versus unrighteous anger. And then 
uh, the psychologically inclined among us take these verses and, and make them sort of a, a moralistic platitude that, okay, this means you're supposed to make up before you go to sleep at night. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. So if you get mad during the day, everybody gets mad. If you get mad, by the way, I had a friend of mine who's a stickler for grammar say, mad means insane. You know, angry is something different. But you know what I'm saying. If you get mad, sometimes we get insanely mad, angry. If you get mad, make sure you make up by by nightfall. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Can I ask you, just, just forget about all the rules of hermeneutics for a moment, all the principles of interpretation. Let me just ask you a practical question. Have any of you ever gotten so upset that the problem could not be solved in one day? Could we just do a test? How many people in this room have gotten sufficiently upset that you could not fix it in one day? Are, are, are you being disobedient to this verse? Or are you just being honestly practical with me? Sometimes we get into problems that we can't fix in one day. In the 8 o'clock service, I have a better chance of, of, of connecting with people that have been married for 50 years. And, and I suggested to them, I said, how many of you that have been married for at least 50 years here this morning can testify that some problems have never gone away your entire marriage? You know, I mean, something you just have to learn to deal with because you're not going to solve them. And they still irritate you after 47 years, you know. It's still, uh, it's that thing again, you know. Some things you just don't get fixed by nightfall. Sometimes it's such a big hurt, it's such a frustrating thing, and you don't even know how to talk about it right away. I mean, you don't even know how to verbalize it. by Forget about getting rid of the anger. You don't even know how to talk about it by nightfall. Okay, but I'm, I'm here to give you good news. The Bible is not telling you to get over all your anger by nightfall. That's not what these verses mean at all. How it got in that department, I don't know. But they don't mean this at all. Here's what they mean. This is a commandment. Get angry! Do you follow me? Get angry. That's what Paul's saying. Get angry. Good grief. God's telling me to get angry? You bet He is. And stop sinning. Are you starting to get the connection? Get angry. Stop sinning. Stop letting the sun go down on your wrath. It's a commandment. And the imagery of the sun is at noontime when it's the hottest at its zenith. And it's like 115 degrees in the Middle East desert and bearing down on you. That's how your anger towards sin should always be. The sun at its zenith. Don't let it go down on your anger. And stop giving the devil opportunities. Stop giving him a place in your life. Let your anger towards sin stay fiery hot. So, fix that in your commentary, will you? Write it in the margin of your Bible. 
This verse has nothing to do with getting over spats by nightfall. It's a commandment that we are to become angry towards sin with an attitude that never cools off. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, Abhor what is evil, he's using a word that literally means to have a violent attitude toward evil. It has the, the implication of violence. Paul is getting emotional. And he's saying that, that we should hate sin. We should have an abhorrence of evil. We should never let our anger cool down towards sin. God doesn't. God hates sin. You want to do a study on anger? Study the anger of God. Study His wrath. For it is a terrible, terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's where people without Jesus Christ land. In the hands of an angry God. And you have not seen anger until you have seen God's anger. God's wrath. I mean, we're talking sons of Korah, earth opening up, a fire pit, and people falling in it. God doesn't mess around. He has no love for sin. When it comes to sin, God is an angry God. And so Paul says, love, to be genuine love, has to have that moral rectitude, that compass, that has an anger towards sin that never cools off, and a passion for good that's like glue. The Greek word literally means glue. Be glued to good. Like cling to it. Like you can't separate it. Now, the problem that we get into, and, and the rest of these verses temper this, but the problem we get into with this is we don't know how to be angry towards sin without being arrogant, judgmental Pharisees. Our tendency is to either become judgmental and pharisaic in our righteousness. And then people can't stand us. They don't want to be around us. Or to become so sentimentally gushy and fluffy that anything goes and we just have, you know, everybody feels safe around us because we never have anything negative to say. And God is able to keep the tension together. It's amazing that the most righteous human being that ever walked the planet was Jesus Christ. He was so righteous, the Bible says he was without sin. He was sinless. And yet, sinners were drawn to him. They loved him. They were drawn to be with Him. They sought Him out. And the accusation of the religious leaders was that instead of hanging out at the temple all the time being spiritual, Jesus went home and had dinner with publicans and sinners. He ate 
and drank and partied with unbelievers. Good grief. This is our Savior. What kind of example is that? And in doing so, He never once sinned. He never once compromised. And somehow or another, He drew people to His heart because of His love for them such that they wanted to become like Him. I mean, Nicodemus is a rascal, a thief. He's stealing from people at the tax table. He took that job in the first place because it was a way to line his pockets and get rich, and he abused his own people, hated and despised. You know, here's Jesus is coming, climbs up to get a good look, and Jesus stops right under the tree where he's sitting and says, Nicodemus, come on down. I'm going to your house today for a meal and and all of a sudden at the meal, you know, when it's time for the blessing, Nicodemus gushes out with this statement. He says, I am so happy to have you here today. This is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. I, I, I am I am going to give back everything I've ever taken. If I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay back multiple times as much. I, I just, I want my life right. I want, I, Jesus, I want to be like you. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to your home. You know, that was the attitude of Jesus. He didn't stop under that tree and say, you dirty, filthy, rotten tax collector. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You've been abusing and stealing from your people your whole life. You're, you're just, you, you don't even belong to have the name Jew attached to you. You're just a rascal. Any of you ever witnessed like that? <laughs> How far did you get? How'd that work out for you? You know, Jesus drew those people. And I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, that the only way we can have this fervency for good and this hatred for evil and have it balanced in our lives with a winsome character is to be filled with the Spirit of God and have Jesus coming through because you and I aren't capable of this. But God does it perfectly and Jesus made it plain on this planet when he was among us he says I have not come to judge there will come a day there will come a day when I have come to judge but this is not it I have come now to call sinners to repentance I've come to love I've come to redeem I've come to save and we're living in that day of grace and our ministry is to bring people to Christ. But we have got to have in our love that moral balance. And so he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is the, the between us and among us part. And this is where he uses these other two words. He starts out with this word devoted as philostorgos. It means to have that nurturing instinct of a parent combined with that warm, tender affection of a good friend and that those combinations of attitudes should be in our heart as we come together and love each other. Are you devoted to the people in this room that way? Do you have that kind of tender affection, that kind of nurturing attitude, 
that kind of compassionate caring, that enjoyment of being together, such that you can hardly wait to get here so you can see each other. You cannot do this in an hour and a half on Sunday morning. This will not happen if you just go to church. And you know, the problem that we're facing today in our culture is we're so busy that many times people look for a place to just go to church. They just want to find a place where they can kind of plug in, get spiritually recharged, and then unplug at the door and and go out and try to make it till the next time they go plug in again. But Paul is talking about a kind of family atmosphere, a, a tender, loving compassion for one another that is characterized by looking forward to being together. By wanting to have that lunch or breakfast, by wanting to be in that small group, by wanting to be with other believers as much as we can to be together because we really, really enjoy and care for each other. Do you have that love? That phileo storgos, that tender family-like devotion for the other people in this room? I don't know how our group members would testify to it, but I think they would probably agree. We, we just had a great group Thursday night. Our small group, we had a good time together. We talked about spiritual gifts. We talked about what each other had, and, and people got to talk about what they thought they had. But what was really neat was to listen to the group affirming each other and saying, you know, I see this in your life. I see this in your life. You do this really well. And, and, and to see the confirmation of that back and forth, it was, it was a special time of people loving each other, enjoying being together, knowing each other well enough to say, I see this in your life. And, and I want to encourage you in that. Paul says this is the kind of thing that should characterize our gathering, that we enjoy being together with a nurturing heart of compassion and tenderness of being with each other. So the first aspect of our ministry to one another is characterized by love in this way. Then he says, being diligent, verse 11, not lacking behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The diligence and the fervency that he's talking about is ministering to each other. He's talking about using your spiritual gifts to minister to one another, caring for each other. What is your gift? Do you have the gift of exhortation? Have you used it today? Have you, did you see somebody downstairs at coffee time? Have you met somebody in the foyer? After church, is there somebody on your heart that you just kind of want to go up to and say, you know, I want to give you a word of encouragement. I want to exhort you. I want to lift you up. Someone that you know is hurting, you say, I just want to, I want to go and, and, and just show you mercy. John Russ stood right here this morning, 8 o'clock service, as he stood to talk about the death of his sister. And he could hardly talk about it. And Ron and I were feeling the same thing at the same time. Ron just got there first. He just went over to him, put his arm around him, and stood there with him to help him get out his story. You know, do you have the gift of showing mercy? Do you have that tenderness? Is there someone here that needs that this morning? Is there someone that, that, that needs uh, the prophetic voice? Is there someone that needs ministry? 
Be fervent in that. Be diligent in that. Be overflowing with that. It literally, it, the, the diligence here, the, the word fervency means to boil over. It means you're so much impassioned in your commitment to each other that you're boiling over with it. You can't hold it in. You know what you, you, know what you have when you put a lid on a boiling pot and screw it down? <laughs> You have a, a bomb. <laughs> they call it a pressure cooker if it's controlled. You can make jelly that way. But if it's not controlled, it's going to blow up. It, you know, And that's the kind of fervency. That's the word. It literally means to boil over. So are, are you sitting here this morning kind of reaching that vibrating point where the water's just about to come out the top, you know, and you got to go do something? Fervent in spirit, diligent, but, he says, serving the Lord. And I want to I bring our attention back to that. Because you know what happens? Paul warns the Galatians of this. He says, don't become weary with well-doing. Do you know how you get weary with well-doing? First of all, you're probably doing too much. That's probably one of the reasons. And you, you've taken more than you can chew and handle and, and you're trying to do too much. And then you're doing it. You're so focused on your busyness of doing it that you start thinking you're doing it for people. And then you start expecting people to notice what you're doing. It ha- it's very subtle. But you begin to expect some reciprocity. You know, I'm serving. I'm loving you. I'm caring for you. I'm ministering to you. Anybody ever say, thank you? Hello? And you begin to feel that way. And Paul says you can get weary with well-doing. You can get worn out. And for those of you that are being ministered to, Sharon was at the organ this morning. She stood up. She said a couple of weeks ago, people left thank you notes for all the musicians in the 8 o'clock service. Really cool. You know, we all got one. All the horn blowers and the two keyboardists, we all got these little thank you notes. So we really appreciate your ministry to us in music at the 8 o'clock service. I felt good. That's nice. If you're being ministered to, you need to be grateful. You need to say thank you. You need to let people know they're doing a good job. You need to show your appreciation. This has been a lifelong struggle for me. I I confess that it is a lifelong struggle. Because I'm just I'm sort of a self starter kind of person. I don't have to have anyone tell me what to do to do it. I just do it. And so I kind of expect everybody else to just do it. But I'm sort of a hypocrite in that because I like to know that I'm doing okay and that people appreciate it. I like to know that. But I, I tend not to give a lot of praise. And I have prayed about that for decades. And I think I'm getting a little better. Not a lot, a little. I'm to the thinking stage now. I think about sending you notes every once in a while. <laughs> give me another ten years and I might actually put them in the mail. I might write them. And get them in the mail. But I think about you. You know, this is this is new for me. 
Learning to be grateful, learning to express gratitude is something that you ought to do if you're being served. Because it's part of loving each other. But if you're the one doing the serving, word of caution, you need to look to Jesus for your approval ratings. You do not need to look to other people to affirm you. Okay, the two sides to this coin. Did you hear me? If you're being served, you need to say thanks. But if you're serving, don't expect it. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. You're not serving people. You're serving Jesus. The moment you forget that, you're going to get disappointed. Because people are not going to say thank you all the time. And they're going to forget And sometimes they're just going to get downright snooty toward you because they don't like what you're doing. Even though it's what God put in your heart to do, they don't like it. And they're fickle. And it's going to go back and forth. And if you're gauging yourself on your response, and you're focused on men, then you are going to get exhausted quickly because human beings are not the source that God intended for us to receive our approval ratings. At the end of the day, we need to hear Jesus say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we need to be looking to Him for that approval. We need to be looking to Him for that service. He is the one I'm serving. I'm not serving you, I'm serving Him. Yes, you're benefiting. And I benefit when you serve me. But my focus has to be on Jesus. Do you you understand what I'm saying here? This is an important, important point. If you're getting the blessing, say thank you to the person. Tell them what a good job they've done. Show your appreciation. Give them the congratulations. Every once in a while we need to bring people up in front of the church and, and tell the church what a good job they've done. But if you're doing the job, make sure your heart and mind and attention is on Jesus Christ. Because when you get focused on people, that's when you quit. That's when you take your marbles and go home. That's when you get worn out. That's when you get resentful. That's when bitterness develops. That's when fatigue sets in. That's when you don't have any fun anymore. Because you're doing it for people. Fervent, boiling over to help each other. Because of Jesus. Because I love Him. Because I want Him to use me. Because I'm living for Him while I'm loving you. That's the the message. And then Paul says we need to be a prayerful community that knows how to rejoice in hope and persevere in tribulation. I thought our prayer requests this morning, this whole day, have been especially tender and moving. As people have shared their hearts and asked for prayer. And one of the things that came up in our 8 o'clock service, one person shared that, that his sister was about to lose their home. The foreclosure of a mortgage and bankruptcy. And I heard not too long ago that it was reported on the news that one in ten homes is in foreclosure. One in ten. You just think of, just go down your street and think about that. You got homes on both sides of the street, every five homes stop and say one of these is in foreclosure. Just think about that. We're in a tough way financially in this country. 
people are going to face economic crisis, personal economic crisis. Nobody cares about the world economy when their paycheck is cut off. You know, maybe they do, but I mean, it's like the world economy just landed in my living room. And I'm in trouble. And people are losing homes. Ruth Sween has been in and out of the hospital and nursing care for virtually a year. She's been struggling with her health. These are tribulation times. Are we supporting one another in tribulation? Are we with each other in tribulation? And when hope comes, and, and, the, and the bright prospect of new opportunity. You know, Ryan and Monica were just sharing a few weeks ago that God's opened the doors and they're working with their talents that God has given them for Zondervan Publishing, Christian Publishing Company. It's like a dream job. Wow. Praise God, you know. Chris's interview has gone well and 95% chance it's all green lights. Praise God. You know, we had prayer for a dear sister in the office this morning with the elders, and I'm waiting to hear the testimony. We rejoice in hope that God has healed, that God has touched. John Rust has lost a sister, another sibling in a year. Are we going to be with him in tribulation? As a body... Do we bear each other's burdens, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, and in everything be devoted to prayer? Because as I put in the notes, prayer is the breath of the church. You have to suck it in and out 12 to 16 times a minute, or you're going to die. And prayer is the breath of the church. It is breathing in and out the Holy Spirit as we pray, and as we Bring everything to God in a spirit of prayer. Bathe everything in prayer. That's that trilogy of statements. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. But devoted to prayer in everything. Is that our characteristic? And then finally, in the admonition to us as a church family, Paul says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. I kind of put it in my notes in a convoluted sort of way. I said inside or outside of our personal space. And here's what I mean by that. John tells us in his first letter, he says, If you see your brother in need and you shut up your bowels of compassion, that gut level response to their pain, to their need, and you ignore your emotions. And you just say to them, depart. Be warmed and filled. I'll pray for you. And you have in your house the ability to meet their need. You have the food. You have the money. You have the clothes to meet their need. And you say, go be warmed and filled. He says, the love of God does not dwell in you. Well, that's not what he said exactly. He put it rhetorically. How does the love of God dwell in you? It doesn't. That's not love. Love is if your brother or sister has a need and you have the means, 
you meet the need. And and if you have a need and I meet your need, very practically, you need you need a jacket for winter, I give you one. You're out of groceries and I bring you a bag of groceries. You need this and I give it to you. You need some money uh, for gas and I give you money for gas. That's kind of outside of my personal space. You know, we could go after service and say, well, come out to my car with me and I have a I have a jacket in the trunk and I'll just you can have that. And so we go to my car and I open the trunk and I give you a jacket and you you look it fits and you put it on and you go away and it cost me a jacket, but that was all. You know, I I gave it to you. It's outside of my personal space. And it's that's very legitimate. That's an appropriate way of loving people. It's okay. Many people are willing to go that far, or some are anyway. But Paul says also, practicing hospitality. Ah, that means that I'm not only willing to go to the trunk and take the coat out, I'm willing to invite you to my house. I'm willing to bring you into my life. You need some attention, I'll give you some time. Let's take a walk together. You come to my door and you're hungry, it's one thing to hand you a can of soup and a bag of rice, but it's another thing to say, you know what, we've got dinner on the stove right now, why don't you come in and sit at our table and share this meal with us. Let's, let's have this meal together. And after the meal, man, I can't wait for them to get out of here so we can get back to normal. No, you say, sit down in the living room, watch TV with me, or let's, we're going to, we're going to play family games. Just play a game with us. You know? We were going to go for a bike ride. Neighbor over there has got a bike we can borrow. You can ride mine, I'll go borrow his. Let's let you come with us. Now I'm giving my space. I'm giving my life. I'm not just giving the stuff. I'm giving me. My home. My food. My entertainment. My fellowship. I'm sharing it. You're in my life, and I welcome you. You know, some people have the idea that hospitality is that you entertain well. You know, you set the fancy table, you get everything just right, and you invite the people you enjoy the most. Come have dinner with me. But hospitality is, my home is open. You know, we all have days right before we do the laundry. You know, we all have times we didn't get all the dishes done. Most of us don't vacuum every day of the week. If you do, and you have some extra time, I have a plan. But are you willing to receive people into your home at any time? Into your life at any time? Are you willing to give of yourself at any time? Hospitality is that that spiritual sensitivity that says, my life is open to you, and you're welcome in it, whatever that means. And if, and if you need a place to stay until you can get on your feet, and, and you need, I have a bed that you can have, you can sleep in it. You can come to my house and stay in my guest room, or my sofa, or whatever, you know really touching when people say come in and take my bedroom and we'll sleep on the sofa hospitality says that that I'll reach out to you now 
there's obviously a, a fine line of distinction there, you know, that we're so worried about being enablers. You know, if, if I just give to everybody and do this for everybody, you know, they're, they're all going to just, I'm going to be enabling them. And that's not necessarily the case. I don't know where you draw that line. I'm going to let God worry about that. I, I, I think you have to have spiritual sensitivity that way. The Bible does say if a man won't work, don't let him eat. So if you know somebody that you've helped him out, and you've helped him out, and you've helped him out, and they have an allergy to work, then they need to develop an allergy to food. They just need that you don't, don't help them anymore. If they're not going to work, don't provide. Because people need to be jolted into activity. I'm not talking about people that have disability and can't work. I'm talking about people that are able and capable and won't do it. And there comes a time when you've got to draw the line. But the general attitude of the heart has got to be, if you have a need and I have the means, I will not withhold it from you. And if your need is for some of my space, my table, my life, my time, you're welcome. Paul says we need to practice this with each other. In a church that's being all the church should be, people should be growing in Christ, they should be maturing, they should be growing in responsibility, but no one should suffer need in a family of God. No one should suffer need, true need, because we need to be attentive to one another in that brotherly, devoted, tender love. And so I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing in the love quotient here today? Loving, diligent, prayerful, and practical. How are you doing? True spirituality is meted out in the practice of these attributes. No, it's not how many hours you spent reading the Bible or praying in your prayer closet. As important as that is, you've got to stay plugged in. But is it showing up in the practice of of love within the body. Father, I want to pray this morning that you'd open our hearts to what it is to be real, true followers of Jesus Christ and to manifest your love to one another in this family. That we would be a family. That we would love each other with a commitment like a family. That this just wouldn't be a place to come and experience a service once in a while, but that we would love each other and care for each other. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.